<laughs> anyway, thank you uh, so much for just being here. It's good to uh, be with you guys. And um, thank you, um, Dave, for your wife, for marrying such a capable woman um, who is feeding us so well. And let's see, Cameron, uh, Matt's wife, Matt Dodd's wife, thank you for that. That was great. And did Kristen make those muffins? So tell her thank you. Anybody else that, did I miss that brought food today? I just want you to know, I, Cass and I were talking about this um, yesterday. Uh, we hope anybody who is a part of Build, like next year, gets no wind of this, of what's happening, because this has never happened before. And um, you guys, the, your wives have set the expectation really high, so don't tell anybody about what we do here in terms of food, all right? So thank you guys for having the wives that just want to and, and, and um, help out and serve and be kind to us. Of course, you know that by saying that, you've invoked the oh. fight, club, fight Club mentality there. That's true. <laughs> Don't and tell anybody about Fight Club. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it's recorded, so that's not good. Here, let me just do a couple, a, a little business thing this morning. Um, there's a group that comes in here at 9. Um, they're scheduled to have it at 9. Um, because we are a social bunch and sometimes leave 9, 15-ish, um, it would be really good for us to be out of here before then. So what I want to do this morning is when we're done with our teaching time in here, um, I want to just go ahead and break this room down, and which means just take all the food out. And, and we can even just set it, um, even out here, if we want to set the food out so that it's just not in this room. Um, but it would be helpful if before we go to small groups that you know we have all of our stuff out of here. We won't be able to use this room for small groups. Um, just that would be, that would make them very happy, and um, that would be good. So uh, we've options for small groups where we can meet the three groups: the choir room, then on the far end down here on the right. Um, I, I checked the library is about halfway down on the right. That will seat 12 people around the tables that are in there. And then I'll probably just take, um, maybe Matt, our small group can kind of go in the sanctuary over by the choir where they sit over there and we'll just pull up some floor and let you guys sit where the choir does and stuff like that. So that way we just have this room available for them. Um, you know, Gethsemane is, is so hospitable and they're just, um, they love having us here. It has been one of the most bizarre relationships I've ever seen. Unexpected in, in that sense of bizarre, not like it's hard bizarre. But just I would have never imagined that it could be as comfortable as it is renting from them and them being so kind to us and uh, wanting us. Um, we're, both churches are, are growing and so we're bumping into each other a lot more than we ever did before even just even months ago um, and so this is a really good thing uh, but you know uh, leadership wants to make anything and everything available people who are in the body and who are in ministries and, and when they want what they think they should always have access to but we signed up and reserved it and followed all the rules sometimes it's like but this is our church you know and, and we would be the same way we would feel that you know and so we're just trying to um, 
figure out how to be good tenants and they're trying to figure out how to be gracious hosts and it's an opportunity for us to display the gospel to them and we're just grateful for them and praying earnestly about what do we do uh, from here um, so a couple Sundays ago having the you know baptism and, and having communion and membership and parent dedication we had 300 people in the gym and that ma- that's the maximum that can be in there um, so we're not there on a regular Sunday by Sunday basis, but um, you know we're, we're, we recognize that we're probably moving towards a collision course, um, and so we're just really trusting the Lord. We uh, <coughs> uh, last Sunday night <coughs> at our elder meeting, we went through and worked on the budget <coughs> for 2010, and it was really encouraging to me that um, we were able to keep our budget very close to what we are this year. Uh, that's right. Huh? Yep. Not much of a of a three percent. Three percent. Yeah. So we're really grateful for that. Um, I think that's a good time, good thing to do at a time when the economy is as questionable as it is. And um, so we're just trying to keep things as steady as we can. And praise God, you know, if, if all things go as they normally do, we should be have a end in a in a really good place as a church this year. So. You know, we just we'll be faithful as much as we possibly can. Try to depend on the Lord and be humble, and we'll just keep asking God um, to take care of us. He loves this church more than we do, and um, we rely on that a lot. So I just encourage you to keep praying for the church as well, and where we meet, and all of that. So, all right, take your notebook and flip it over to the back. <coughs> My prayer for you is that your wife would be able, or your roommates, or whoever would be able to wake you up in the middle of the night, and you would just start spouting out uh, disciplines one, two, and three. <laughs> the heart, the heart, it's my heart, I'm shoving my heart. <laughs> so, um, but seriously, um, I, I hope this becomes reflexive in you, not in a mindless way, but in an intentional this is the only thing I know what to say um, in regards to myself before Christ and, and in regards to gospel ministry. When I'm, when I'm talking to other people, I don't know what else to start with other than to start with, let's make sure we're shepherding our hearts to God in his word um, in order to know him, in order to meet him, in order to, be, uh, to grow in our love for him. Um, that has to be at the foundation, guys. That must be the, the well, the spring, from which everything else flows. Um, I can't wait for tomorrow night at church because we're going to talk about how uh, we need to be able to comprehend what is the, the breadth and the height and the length and depth of the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ. And... That's the kind of man you and I need to be. Someone who is distracted by God's love for us in Christ. The difference between that kind of a Christian who's ministering to people in the church, who's distracted by the love of Christ, and the guy who's maybe just, I don't know, unaware of it. I mean, there's a huge difference. Um, and, and we don't want to play leapfrog over that. And so this is, you know, for your own heart, for your own soul, where you're at, 
shepherd your heart so that you might know God in his word better. But also so that when you're sitting and you're in small group or when you're having coffee or when you're having lunch with somebody or somebody is, a brother is down or whatever and needs encouragement, this is, this is just what you know what to do. Let's talk about our hearts before God and his word. How, how is it going? How can I help you? Um, here's what really matters. Get this taken care of, and that doesn't mean all of your circumstances will be super fine and comfortable, but it means that you will have a heart that is full of God in those circumstances, and we can glorify God much more readily. So from there, we obviously move to shepherding our homes, our household relationships. We don't want to play leapfrog over those. We want to make sure that we're really caring for the people, that we're displaying the gospel to them. Um, that there's an aroma that comes off of us when we are, uh, when, when anybody steps into the place where we live with um, roommates or family. Um, that one of the worst things that can happen is for, for a dad is that as children grow up and begin to think on their own, when they're outside, they think dad acts one way, talks one way, sounds like something's really important to him outside the home and then when they get home they're like oh that's interesting dad's not like that um, or for your wife to notice that um, that you you're one way outside the home and, and something else inside the home that's not a good thing there needs to be integrity in, in, in who we are and no matter where we are uh, so make sure you're shepherding your household relationships um, from there, you're then ready to step into Discipline 3, which is just the ministry, where you're, you're now really, um, if you're working on those two things constantly, you never graduate from those two things, right? If you're working on those two things, man, with confidence and with joy and with eagerness, step into people's lives in the church. Step into people's lives in the church. Pour yourself into people. Get plugged into people because you have something to say. Because you've been meeting with God in His Word. You, you've, you've been like Moses and you're saying, um, God, show me your glory. And Moses came down the mountain and people fell back because they saw his face radiating the glory of God back. They knew he had been with God. Um, we need a sense of that as we step into people's lives that, that they know that indeed we have been meeting with God in His Word. Um, and we're going to talk, we're going to really jump into Discipline 3 today and 1 Thessalonians 1. It's one of my favorite, um, favorite portions of Scripture, chapter 1 and 2. We'll do chapter 1 today and chapter 2 next time when we get together. Um, from there, we, our fourth discipline is just on the qualifications, uh, which is really um, a summary of the first three, uh, the, the biblical qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 and the deacon qualifications in First uh, Timothy 3, are really just descriptions of what the man is like with his heart. Is he a godly man? Uh, what is he like in his home? Does he manage his household well? And um, what's he like with people in general? Um, and so that's what your qualifications, we're going to be pointing you primarily towards um, deacon qualifications. We are going to do that, I think, if you look in your schedule, I think we start in January. When we come back after Christmas, we'll be jumping into... Uh, discipline four, and then discipline five is a catch-all category where we want to just deal with biblical, theological, practical things. And, and at any time, guys, if there's a real biblical question that you have, um, a theological 
concern you have, a practical ministry concern about anything you see in the church, at any point you can talk to you know uh, any of the elders. You can talk to me. You can talk to Tom, um, and bring it to our attention. And um, we would. This is a great platform for us to address it um, and talk about it. So you, that there's an open door for you to talk about that anytime you want. And then lastly, uh, discipline six is our biblical vision and purpose. Um, we're tr hoping to unite leaders around these disciplines. Um, the first five, hopefully, are, are things that would work at any church. Uh, that's just true wherever you are. But we're not just any church. We're Grace Bible Church, and we have a particular biblical vision and gospel purpose that we're after. And so we want to make sure that what we're doing with our leaders is actually directing them towards that and so we need to be aware as as men who are disciplining our lives for leadership in the church we need to make sure we understand what our church's biblical vision and gospel purpose is so there's your disciplines um, set the alarm have your wife wake you up in the middle of the night and say ask me what discipline one is and see if I can say it um, reflexively and if you can you are a godly man so all right take your quote and let's take a look at that I came across this um, last week in studying the passage, and I just thought I wanted to share it with you because it's about the heart and about Christ dwelling there and what it's like for him to dwell there in our hearts from Ephesians 3, 17. And this is from John Stott in his commentary in Ephesians. Um, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, the word there, may dwell, is katakoikain, um, a it's an infinitive. It's a word made expressly to denote residence as against lodging. We talked about that. It's not like staying in a hotel. It's, no, this is where I live. Live. I lodge here. It's the abode of a master within his own home. I mean, if anybody lodges in a place, it's the master of the house, right? Um, it's the abode of a master within his own home as against the turning aside for a night of the wayfarer who will be gone tomorrow. Again, it is the residence always in the heart of its master and lord who, where he dwells, must rule, who enters not to cheer and to soothe alone as master, but he enters there before all things to reign. So there's this idea that when Christ comes to dwell in the heart, he's not just coming as, as a friend, but this is his... This is the, your heart is the abode of a master, and he is coming to reign there. Thus Paul prays to the Father that Christ, by his Spirit, will be allowed to settle down in their hearts, and from his throne there both control and strengthen them. And uh, it's an amazing Trinitarian passage. I bow my knees before the Father, so that <coughs> you might be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in the inner man, um, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, uh, by faith. So it's a great reminder, and I hope that's encouraging to you to think about and to be challenged by. All right, with that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into First Thessalonians 1. Okay? Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what we know um, to be true is that upon repentance and faith in you and your Son and entrusting our lives to what he accomplished for us at the cross, we know that we are indwelt by Christ and that your Holy Spirit comes and seals us and begins to dwell in us and begin a life of power and fullness. 
We know that to be true. And we know that there is nothing that we can do that would separate us from that expression of love as he indwells us. Um, nothing. Not ourselves, not anything that could happen to us. You have done a sure work in us. But what we also know to be true is that we are exhorted to be the kind of people that Christ would really feel at home in. Um, and so, God, I pray for these men. I pray for myself that, Lord, you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit, the very core of who we are in the inner man, all for a reason, so that Christ might as a master dwelling in his own home, feel that comfortable and reign that um, easily like a master does in his home. And we pray that that would be obvious to our, us as we seek to live in dependence on your spirit. We pray that, that would be obvious to others that Christ indeed reigns in us and is quite at home. And Father, uh, we pray that you would use our time together this morning, even to that end, that we, as we depend upon you, as we look at your word, that you would help us to see what kind of men we should be as we minister the gospel to people. Thank you so much for inscripturating uh, the example and the life of Paul as he went about planting churches. Help us to have the insight we need by your spirit to see what you're revealing to us there about a gospel man. And we pray, Lord, that it would be pleasing to you what you accomplish in us today, and that, Lord, we would change, that we would be concerned um, about keeping the gospel central, not just in our own lives, but in the way that we minister to one another. And so be with us, open our eyes, soften our hearts, and be powerful. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and take our worksheet together. What I'd like to do, and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1. What I'd like to do is read the whole chapter to you, and then we will focus our attention on verses 5 to 10. And again... Just a reminder, not that you necessarily need it, but yeah, well, we all need it. Uh, make yourself at home, get up, get down, use the restroom, do whatever. It's uh, family style here. Let me read the passage to you. You follow along. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. <coughs> and then he offers an explanation of... Um, what chosen ones look like and, and what a ministry in the gospel um, looks like to chosen ones. Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now what I want to do this morning is, in verses 5 to 10, I want to give you five ministry statements. You have them there on your um, sheet, and I just gave you some space to take notes if you want. Um, let's start with number one. If we're going to talk about the ministry, discipline three, it's important to understand, number one, that ministry has only one message. It's the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. But what Paul is, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, Paul is affirming positively that the gospel did come to them. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in with a bunch of other expression with it. He says, it, it did come to you, it's just that it didn't come only merely in word. So he's affirming indeed that the gospel did actually come to them. Um, now what I want to do is I want to, for a moment, give you a, a, maybe an insight into the way Paul viewed gospel ministry um, from another book. I know we just started in verse 5 in, in chapter 1, but I want to go to Romans chapter 1 and let you see something, an observation from the book of Romans. And I don't remember if I've showed you this before or not. If I did, it's, it's a good reminder. I love to remind myself of this. Go to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see Paul's manner with the gospel, the way that he thought about the gospel. If we're, we're going to say ministry has only one message and it's the gospel, we need to make sure that we understand what Paul has set forth in regards to the gospel and the way that he used it in his own life. Look at Romans chapter 1. Start. Look at verse 11. Paul says, I long to see you um, so that I may impart some spiritual gifts to you that you may be established, really just strengthened in your faith. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay, it's clear that in Paul's mind he's thinking of Christians. I want to be encouraged by your faith in Jesus Christ, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I'm eager to come to you. I long to see you. Drop down to verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul, why on earth would you want to go preach the gospel to Christians? I mean, isn't, don't you preach the gospel to unbelievers? See, this is, when we, that, that kind of thinking reveals that we have taken the great big gospel and we have shrunk it down into something much smaller than it is. It's true. You preach the gospel with the hopes 
uh, preaching to unbelievers that they will believe. You do. But that's shrinking it down and, and missing something very important that the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. Not because they might lose their salvation. And so we got to keep preaching it to make sure everybody feels safe. But we just keep preaching it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So his whole point is to preach the gospel to those who believe. Now, that's the first chapter of Romans. I want you to go to Romans chapter 16. And just keep your hand in Romans 1 and then go to Romans 16, verse 25. Look at Paul's benediction. Okay, so I want you to be able to see the beginning of Romans. I want you to be able to see the last page of Romans. Now, as he closes his letter, after spending a whole chapter greeting Christians um, who are in churches, verse 1, you know, Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, co-laborers in Christ, verse 4, also all the churches of the Gentiles. Um, he goes on and on. He's talking about these Christians in the churches. Verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you, etc. Now, verse 25, now to him who's able to establish you who are in churches according to a standard, according to my gospel. Okay, and just remember that word my gospel for a second. And I'm going to make a note on that, and then we're going to come back to it in 1 Thessalonians. So he wants to establish these Christians according to my gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ and according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. We know that, right? We've seen that in Ephesians 3. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures um, of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. So Paul's thought is, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the gospel to you who already believe, and I'm going to end my letter saying, I want you to be strengthened according to my gospel. Right? So, first chapter about the gospel. That's his concern. Last chapter, concern about the gospel. Tell me, what's this between... I'm trying to turn my page so you can see. It's the very best. <laughs> very, very, very sharp. <laughs> Is this in between here something different from the gospel? No, what this is, is some of the richest gospel theology you'll find anywhere in the book of Romans. It's not like, see, what we need to understand is doctrine and theology and everything is, is not something that is like, um, well, you know, the, the gospel is, I guess, I guess if we could give an illustration, the gospel's, you know, like a, a, a household dog and, and doctrine is like, I don't know, maybe a, a hyena. You know, they're kind of related. No, I mean, they're like this. They're, they're very close. They're, they're inseparable. Theology and gospel. Gospel theology. Gospel doctrine. Doctrine that's in accordance with the gospel. And so what I want you to see is, that, is, is, is to, to think, well, you, you don't hear the gospel, graduate from that, and move on to theology. That's not the way Paul thinks at all. You preach the gospel, you begin with the gospel, you 
take steps forward from there in the gospel all the way into your last step in the gospel. It's all gospel. And there's theology and there's rich doctrine that branches off from it and is nourished from it. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Because I want you to think about that. That's Paul's manner with the gospel. The gospel came to you. He's emphasizing that, making it stand out. The leading concern as Paul, as he writes the Thessalonians and reflects back on his ministry with them, is that the gospel engaged them. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. So you see, uh, verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's leading concern as he thinks back on his time with them is that the gospel came to you. That's what the ministry that I had with you was all about, was the gospel. And what we have to remember as we step into one another's lives in this church and beyond this church is that that must be our leading concern also. When we talk about Discipline 3 and we talk about the ministry, we're talking about the ministry concerning the gospel with each other. Okay, We're not talking about any kind of ministry that flows out of anything except the gospel. And we want to help one another engage with the gospel. Even if we've been in Christ for 25 years, 50 years, it doesn't matter. We want to engage one another with the gospel. And again, we want to engage one another in the fullness of the gospel. We don't merely come to each other and say, hey, I just want to remind you, you know, I want to be gospel-centered with you, so I want to remind you of that message you heard a long, long, long time ago when you were a little pagan and you repented and believed and became a Christian. There, I was gospel-centered with you. <coughs> You know, you know what that is? That's what I call um, di- like a diploma gospel. You know, you know your diploma? Um, that's that thing you hang on your wall or you go put in a file somewhere after a while. And it really meant something a long time ago. It was important. A long time ago. You needed it. Um, but today, every day, I mean, you don't take out that gospel and like carry it with you or that diploma and carry it with you everywhere. Okay? We don't want a view of the gospel that way at all. Okay, So when we put the gospel at the center of our relationships, we've got to do it like Paul does. I know you're a believer, but I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and I want you to preach the gospel to me. I know of, a, of an instance in our church recently where we had a, a person who was really uh, going through a very dark um, moment and trouble, and she um, knew it, and she was just really wrestling um, knew that what she needed more than anything was the gospel, was, was uh, doing the best she could to proclaim it to herself and remind herself. And she called up somebody in her small group and she said, would you just preach the gospel to me? That is amazing. That's what it's about. Just remind me of the great truths and the power of the gospel. See, that's what we need to be like. That's what we're called to be. That's what it means to be... Um, ministry-minded with one another. Now, before we move on, notice what Paul says in verse 5. 
He says, for our gospel. Remember back in, in Romans 16, he said, my gospel. Now he says, our gospel, because it's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy who are writing. He says, it's our gospel. Now let's be clear about something. Um, Paul didn't, Paul's not an inventor. He's not a, a message inventor. He didn't invent this gospel, and it's his like a guy who invents some type of device, and he can says it, say it's his. He didn't invent the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, I received this gospel, and I proclaim it to you. So what is Paul saying here? Um, it's because the gospel was given to him, and therefore because the gospel owns him, and has produced the result that Paul has taken ownership of the gospel. That's what's going on. The gospel came to him, and he received it. It overwhelmed him. It possessed him, and he felt, I possess it right back. It's mine. This is a bold statement for Paul to make. In other places, he, he's not a hesitant to say it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. But sometimes, like in Romans 16 and in 1 Thessalonians, he says, it's my gospel. He owns it. That's a bold statement. The aroma coming off of Paul over and over and over is that this is mine. This gospel's mine. And is it yours? <clears throat> Have you ever heard yourself say that? It's my gospel. You need to be really careful. I mean, clarify what you mean when you say that, right? I don't want to give people the implication. But look, Paul wasn't afraid to say that. There's an aroma coming off of him of just complete ownership of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. So here is the leading concern. The ministry has only one message, and the gospel, it came to you. Here's the second statement. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. And I would actually propose to you that I think you'll see it this morning and, and the next time we're together. I think that's actually his leading main concern throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 at least. That he is concerned to remind them of the kind of men that they were when they were with them. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. This carries so much of the weight in chapters 1 and 2. It, the interesting thing in, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is, is not so, Paul is not so much aiming to unfold the details of the content of the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is. It's Christ crucified for forgiveness of sin. He's not in, in concerned to establish that in this first part of this letter. The interesting thing is that he's, he seems to be more concerned to talk about not the content of the message, but the carrier of the message. He seems to be more concerned that they understand and remember the kind of messenger that came with the message. It's really an amazing thing he does. Paul says the gospel came to them, but what does he say? It did not come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what? What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, let's think about this next phrase here, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Um, these three prepositional phrases, what are, they, what are they linked to? What are they tied to? You really have two options in the verse. Paul, one, might be saying that the gospel message came to you in power. The gospel message 
had power. The gospel message had the Holy Spirit. The gospel message, oh boy, it had full conviction. That is one option. And is that theologically true? Absolutely, it is. I don't think that's what is being taught here, though, or what is being revealed here. The other option is that Paul is saying that this is tied to actually the gospel messenger. In other words, Paul and his co-laborers had power. Paul and Timothy and Silvanus had the Holy Spirit. And Paul and the guys came as convinced men, full of conviction about what they were doing. Now, what's the proof of that? How do you, how do you know that's what's going on here? Just, you see that preposition, that, that string of those three prepositional phrases. What, what came before it? Okay? In power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What's right before that? What does Paul say? What's his point? The gospel didn't come to you with merely words. Now, what follows right after that? How's the verse end? You know what kind of men we prove to be. So what's the first part of the verse emphasizing? I'm not merely talking about content. In fact, let me tell you at the end of the verse what I am talking about. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about the guys who came to you. I'm talking about power. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about full conviction. We were uncommon messengers among you. When Paul thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, what he seems to remember is that power accompanied his ministry to them. The Holy Spirit accompanied his ministry to them. And that he was full of confidence when he was with them. That's really an amazing thing that's being said here. You're going to see it all the way down here. Let me just point you down to verse 9. The word gets out, right, about what happened in Thessalonica with Paul and, and, the, and the Thessalonians. The word gets out. And what's the report? They themselves report about us. The report's about Paul. So Paul's attempt here is to say, I'm gonna, I want to really stress what a gospel messenger looks like. Go to chapter 2. Having, verse 8, having so, what, what's the, uh, back in verse 7, what are we concerned to prove? We prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our lives. Verse 10, you are our witnesses, and so is God. How what? How great the gospel is? It is great, but his point here in chapter 1 and 2 is to say how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you. You see, his emphasis here is on the kind of messenger that comes with the gospel. And the challenge for us in this, I think, is in our day, and I would say in, in our church, and just because the kind of day we live in, if we err on a side in regards to gospel ministry... We err on the side of being content that the gospel comes in words only. Okay? There's a movement in Christianity today that's only concerned about how people... No, they're not concerned about the content of the gospel. But in deeds that are done in the gospel's name. But we're probably of a cut that's different than that. And we're, we're probably and maybe even being reactionary against that because we see that there are weaknesses in that. It's not all wrong and not all bad by any means. We want to display the gospel. But we can react and say, oh, the gospel content. And so we can become people who are content that the gospel comes in words only and step back and say, well, 
I might have been a jerk, but at least you heard the gospel. Right? That may not have come off the best way, but at least you heard the gospel. And see, we could be err on that side of being content with that, and Paul's not content with that kind of thinking at all. The temptation for us is to be content with words only, while we might ourselves be empty of power, be empty of the Holy Spirit, not full of the Spirit, better way to put it. Maybe lacking conviction about the gospel. That we present the gospel like it's something we read in, a, in an article, rather than it's mine. It's my gospel. I'm convinced about it. And this is why we start back with discipline number one. Guys, shepherd your heart to the word of God, to the gospel. To meet with a savior in the gospel and plead with God for his power in your life to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That his Holy Spirit would be fully engaged in your inner man. And plead with God to give you greater confidence, full conviction about what you believe. I love how it ends. Verse 5. You know what kind of man we prove to be among you for your sake. For your sake. A great question for you. What kind of man do you want to prove to be? Guys, what kind of a man do you want to be? What, do you want to, what kind of a man do you want to prove to be? You need to be an uncommon messenger with the gospel. Thirdly, ministry involves imitation. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, Paul is not saying, you know, when I was with you guys, I, I showed you two different examples. It was my example, and then there was Christ's example. And you became imitators of me and of Christ. He's not trying to establish two different examples. What he's saying is, my life is in alignment with Christ, and you became imitators of me and of the Lord. The Lord and of me. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, what? Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Paul's pattern of life, it wasn't out of alignment with Christ's pattern of life. His life wasn't divergent from Christ. His life was on the same trajectory as Christ. And this should be your prayer and your plan. Get this. Your plan is to make sure that yes, the gospel comes in words. But your plan needs to push a step beyond that to and God please make me into an imitatable man. Make me into an example for others to imitate. This is an old example, but there was once a, a great athlete who said, I'm not a role model. <laughs> and then we even have, in the last week, a really sad example, don't we? And I know, these guys don't set out to say, you know, my, my goal in life is I want to be a role model. They don't. They want to play basketball and they want to play golf. And they want to be the best at what they can do. Guys, we are role models. As a Christian man in ministry, you are a role model. Um, that's what the gospel does to you. It makes you into an imitatable man. It's probably imitable <coughs> instead of imitatable. I don't know, let's just make up words. We'll... 
So this needs to be your prayer, that you would be so aligned with Christ that others might imitate your life as you imitate Christ. So God's design here in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but we give each other an example. Okay? So plead with God to become, uh, for him to make you a reflection of Christ. Now, specifically here in verse 6, how did they imitate Paul? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So we need to remember all the time that the gospel that we are embracing ourselves and that we are preaching in the land that we live, this land we live in is enemy territory. It is. Preach that to yourself every day. This is not Disneyland. Okay? We are not in heaven. We are in enemy territory. We live among rebels who are following a rebel prince who has been shaking his fist against God for a very, very long time. And the, the rebels that follow him are hostile against God. And oftentimes, most of the time, they're really hostile against you and me too because of our affiliation with him. We live in a volatile place. And God's design in his plan in the gospel mission is that many receive the gospel in the midst of turmoil and affliction. <coughs> That's his plan. It's just the way it goes. But notice what it says there. You receive the word in much tribulation. I probably would have put a period there. But he didn't end the verse that way. How does it end? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I don't usually think that tribulation and turmoil um, and joy go together. I think that tribulation in my life and turmoil in my life, that is a joy killer. It does. But the good news is it tells us about this joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit, connected with the Holy Spirit. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus spoke about joy as if it was his too. And so there is a joy that is rooted with with uh, Christ and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's joy is Jesus' joy. Jesus' joy is the Holy Spirit's joy. Let's go back. I want to show you what Jesus said to his disciples on the last night. Go to John 15. Let's just remind ourselves about what Jesus said concerning joy. John 15, verse 11. that last night he says these things I have spoken to you so that my joy my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full that as my joy is in you that joy that you have your joy will be made full so he's recognizing there's a joy that I have I want it to be in you I want you to be full in that joy okay uh, chapter 16 verse 20 He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she's in pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy 
away from you. Verse 24. Now 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. And then look over at chapter 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, Father, as Jesus prays, <coughs> and these things I speak in the world so that they may um, have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Remember, he's saying that they live in enemy territory. So they need to have my joy made full in them. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I just ask that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You see, I have, I have my joy, and you have your joy. There's, there's a Scott version of joy. And tribulation and turmoil quenches it and touches it and knocks it out all the time. All the time. And what Paul is telling us back in 1 Thessalonians is that God has a joy for us. There's joy that's from Jesus. There's joy that's from the Holy Spirit. And tribulation can't touch it. It can be made full in you. And it is in that sense that they imitated Paul. The word came to you and there was trouble everywhere. You were joyful, people. You were joyful. Plead to um, imitate Christ so as to be this kind of an example to others so that when trouble comes in your life, there's joy and they can even imitate that. You have a joyful life that's centered on the Word in the midst of trouble. Love that about God's Word. It is so great. It is so transcending our circumstances that even in the midst of everything going down the tubes, um, there's still joy. There's still joy. Third, I'm sorry, fourth ministry statement, number four, back in 1 Thessalonians 1. You see, they became imitators for a reason or for a purpose. See how verse 7 starts out? So that, so, so number four, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Or, in other words, the way of saying it is that the example, the life that is an example is an effective life. And you'll see what we're talking about here in a second. So that, verse 7, indicates there's purpose going on here. Verses 6 and 7 reveal an imitation chain reaction that's taking place in gospel ministry. Look at it. So that you became an example. Wait a minute. You imitated us. And then, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is amazing. Christ is imitated by Paul, right? Paul becomes somebody that the Thessalonians imitate, and now they are an example for all who live in Macedonia and Achaia. That's a chain reaction. Christ to Paul, from Paul to the Thessalonians, from the Thessalonians to anybody else in the region who hears about him. And this is what you have to set your mind on, guys. We, boy, I tell you, we settle for such little stuff in gospel ministry. When I think of ministering the gospel to my family who do not know Christ, 
um, my parents. I pretty much pray about content of the gospel kind of stuff and their response to it. And that is good. Nothing wrong with that. But there is so much more that we should push for and aim for beyond that and pray and ask God for. See, don't merely be concerned about gospel content. Yes, be, if you don't get the right content in the gospel or a reduced ministry <coughs> gospel, that's a bad thing. Don't, do, don't settle for bad content. That's not what I'm saying. But get the right content, but then take a step beyond that and say, and be thinking about, you know, God, I need to be an uncommon messenger with that gospel. And God, it's not even enough for that. I want people to actually imitate my example. And not even that, but I want them to become an example to others. I mean, can you imagine praying all the way down that? Right content displayed in the gospel, given and proclaimed. Um, A life that is imitatable with that. For my person that I'm sharing it with, that they would become an imitator of me as I follow Christ. And then that they would actually become an example to others beyond them. That is huge, what Paul is saying here. And that's what we need to set our minds on. And you know what? We'll never hit that if we never ask for it. We'll never hit that if we never aim for it. So start aiming for it if you haven't been. And then Paul offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that's been taking place. It's the explanation of what I mean here by effective lives. This is an amazing verse. Watch this. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. You see, that's, that's how you were the example. And not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. It has gone forth everywhere. The, the word, when it says that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, that, that's um, the word sounded forth is, is like a trumpet blast. Um, it was a distinct sounding forth to call an army to, to attention or to fight. <clears throat> and notice how far that biblical blast went. It, it, just not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but Paul says in every place your faith has gone forth. That is a solid, that's a very effective sounding forth, isn't it? Didn't just stay on their block. And all this happened relatively quickly. I mean, Paul, we know, spent probably at a minimum three Sundays, um, three weekends, three Sabbath, not Sabbaths, three, three Lord's Days with them in, in, Thessalonica, in Thessalonica. And then he was gone for a short period of time, didn't get to stay with them very long. And now he's writing back. And he's saying all this in a matter of probably a few months. That's amazing. The key statement here about how effective all this is, I love this. How does verse 8 end? The word of the Lord sent it forth. It went every place your faith and God toward God had gone forth. So that what? Who's saying this? The great preacher Paul. I can't say anything more. So that we have no need to say anything. God's word and their faith in God blasted forth so loudly. It spoke so loudly for itself. Their lives were so thoroughly transformed um, as believers that, that by the time Paul tried to add, say, yeah, let me tell you about it. They'd say, oh, we, we've already heard that. Paul was relaying old news. 
when he tried to tell others about what happened in Thessalonica. We have no need to say anything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being reduced to silence? So, think about this. We are not to be concerned merely with gospel content. The word of the Lord came to you, not in word only. But we were, you know what kind of men we were with that. So your prayer is not just, I want to get the gospel content right, yes. I want to be a certain kind of man. I want to be a certain kind of man with that gospel. And I want to be an, I want to be an example, but not just merely an example. I want people to imitate me in such a way as, as I'm an example that others will actually imitate them. And I want that to be so effective that it puts me out of a job. I can't say anything. There's nothing more for me to say in this area because it's been so effective what happened. You see, gospel ministry, it produces exemplary lives. We become examples, but it needs to be effective examples of life. So effective that it, we have to move on to someplace else. Because there's nothing more I could say. Can you imagine? That's amazing. We need to pray that God would raise up others who will speak more broadly than we ever could. That, that men and women would come forth from our own lives and from this church and from this Bible that they would speak so far beyond that if we went out there and, and tried to speak, they'd say, we've heard that already. Not in a way like, well, we heard that, we don't hear it anymore, but they're stunned by what they've heard already because I, that's how effective the gospel ministry was in these people's lives. So we would sit back and say, you know, I, I, I can't add to what you've already heard. So ministry has only one message. Number one, the gospel. Number two, Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Thirdly, ministry involves imitation. But fourthly, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. So effective that it puts us out of a job. And lastly, number five, ministry receptivity labors for repentance. Now that's a very awkward statement. I have thought for three years how to say it differently. And so if you can help me, I'll, I'll take any suggestions and I'll show you what I mean by this. It's in verses 9 and 10. He says, in verse 9, as an explanation, we have no need, to, you know how verse 8 ended, we have no need to say anything. Well, let me explain. They themselves have a report. Who are the they themselves? Well, it's the Macedonians and the Achaeans and those who are in every place who are heard. They themselves, emphatically, they have a report. And what do they report? Well, it says in verse 9 and 10, uh, in verse 9 here, that there's actually two things they're reporting. They themselves report... It's about us. It's about Paul and his ministry team. It's a report about Paul. Particularly, it's, it's a report about what kind of reception we had among you. And it's a report about how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So there's the two parts of the report. What kind of reception we had among you. The word reception is the word entrance, that you had a a, a, a wide open, we had a, a wide open entrance and welcomed path into your lives. They report that we just 
came right into your lives. That's the report that's going out. There was receptivity. Our ministry was one of receptivity. You just received us. That's the first part of the report that's going out. Paul, again, is he's emphasizing here how important the messenger is as the message goes forth. His manner among them, the kind of men he proved to be among them, his behavior among them, it wasn't an obstacle to the gospel. It was something that when they saw him, they said, please come closer, say more. We want more time with you. What are you saying? We've never seen anybody like you. His life was not an obstacle to the gospel. That's what we mean when we say ministry receptivity. He was received. Now that was a huge and powerful completer in the gospel mission. That helped complement something else. What was the other thing? Well, in the report, number two, the report is also about how you turned. What's the word we use for that when somebody turns? It's repentance. It's repentance. It's, it's about how you repented. So they reported about how we were just so received. And in the same time, in the same breath, in the same conversation, they couldn't help but talk about how you guys repented. We were received and you guys repented. In the minds of these witnesses, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, and believers in every place, two things stood out in the report. How welcomed Paul was, how well received he was, how receivable Paul was, and how repentant the Thessalonians were. And so this is what we mean. Their receptivity labored for what? It was connected to what? Repentance. The whole goal of being received is so what? We want you to repent and turn to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I find myself pretty much having no trouble at all working on and thinking about the part of being liked. I want to be received by people. I don't wake up every day going, how can I be the thorn in people's sides? <laughs> You know, I'm going to change my name to Sandpaper because I just like rubbing up against people. I just want to be that way. I, don't th I think, sinfully so, oftentimes I think I just want to be liked by people. I just want them to, you know. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we want people to receive us. You don't go to small group going, you know, I really hope I'm an obstacle tonight. Now you want people to feel welcomed into the ministry that you're doing when you have lunch with an unbeliever. You, you don't want to be an obstacle to the gospel, right? We want to be received. We pretty much for the most part have no trouble thinking about that. We want to be liked. We want to be received in all the right ways. We want to be welcomed. We like that kind of report circulating about us. Oh, he's a great guy. But the Macedonians and the Achaeans and the others, they couldn't only think of that aspect of gospel ministry. They simultaneously spilled out in their report, what? The Thessalonians are different people. They're not idol worshipers anymore. They thought about repentance. And he says what this repentance looked like. You turned to God from idols 
here's what your repentance looked like in order to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven boy that's convicting to me can you can you think on this last week guys there's one of the things you thought about yourself is I'm waiting I'm waiting for Jesus to come back I was in a conversation yesterday about over the gospel with, with somebody and and I, I made a statement that was shocking to me. I said, I just said, just in passing and in, in the flow of the conversation, I said, you know, until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, and I was like, oh my goodness, that's right. I haven't thought about that for so long. He's coming back. And that was a part of repentance in Thessalonica. That, that was an aspect of it, a, 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 an expression of repentance. It needs to be in us as well. To wait for his son from heaven. His son is the one that he raised from the dead, Jesus. He's the one who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. So this is what we mean by ministry receptivity. It labors for repentance. It labors for transformation of life. It labors to see people become servants of the Lord. It labors for people to become people who just all they want is they want to wait for that one that they love most to come. Come, Jesus. Come quickly. If all, guys, if all that we are is likable in gospel ministry, but people don't actually change, that should burden our hearts. That should be very, very unsatisfying. That is, that is dilute Kool-Aid. There's nothing worse to drink in the world than Kool-Aid that has too much water in it. That is so unsatisfying. If anything, back off on the water, leave it strong. Let that little... <laughs> or just drink water. Yeah. But we don't want that. We don't, we're not satisfied with just having receptivity, being welcomed into people's lives. We don't want just that. We're unsatisfied. We feel that things are incomplete. Our hearts are broken until what? Repentance comes. Transformation of life comes. Guys, you cannot be satisfied until you see that in your ministry among people. Can't be satisfied until you see that in your parenting. Can't be satisfied until you see that in your parents. You can't be satisfied until you see that in your small group. You can't be satisfied until you see that at your workplace and your neighbors. Aim for repentance as you think about being received or receivable, being receivable. Let me put it negatively. Avoid being a jerk preaching repentance. Okay, we, we don't want to be jerks who are preaching repentance. You need a change. Well, I, re I repented, but bam, I didn't like him at all. <laughs> I want to be like him. I, God was gracious, and I repented, but I, the last thing I want to be is like him. And we, we chuckle. But it's probably not that, that's not all that far away. I'm very capable of that. So don't be satisfied to be liked. Don't go to the other extreme. Don't be satisfied to be liked without any evidence of repentance. Let me give you another example of this. This is really shocking. Go to 2 Timothy 2. I love this. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. A very familiar passage. Now, drop down to verse 25, halfway through the, the verse. Here, here's where Paul's wanting to go. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance. That's what he's thinking. We want God to do what only God can do, that he would give and grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses. That's what we want, right? And escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do as well. That's what we want. Now, what do you think God would lay out in front of that repentance? God is aiming, he wants to give repentance, and now he says, I'm going to lay some things out in front that will make that repentance come about. Now, what would you think he would put? Don't look down. I saw you trying to look. Don't look down. What would we think? Stop that. Stop that. It's a wrong answer. It's a right answer, but it's not yet. We would think, rightly so, the right gospel content. Right? You've got to have the right message. That's right. That's true. Paul is emphasizing something else here. What does he lay out in front before repentance? Look at it. Verse 24. Now you can look down. He says, the Lord's bondservant, the slave of Christ, needs to be a certain kind of man. Because God wants to give repentance. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Must be kind to all. Able to teach. Patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant repentance. Do you see that? That is shocking. God invests in his slaves qualities that they must have so that his repentance will come to pass. And it is our obligation, responsibility under grace to be that kind of man, to be that kind of slave of Christ in gospel ministry where we ourselves are not an obstacle to repentance. See, we can't be concerned merely about content, want to be concerned about content, but we've got to go beyond that. What kind of men do you want to prove to be among people? You have to be the right kind of man. You have to be the right kind of Husband, you have to be the right kind of dad. You have to be the right kind of small group leader. You have to be the right kind of preacher. You have to be the right kind of deacon. You have to be the right kind of elder. You have to be the right kind of Christian man. Repentance depends on it. That's what's being said here, right? That's the report that went out about us, Paul says. This is a great compliment to what Paul teaches in so many other places in regards to right content. I want to make an emphasis. I'm, I'm feeling it right now in my own heart that, oh, I want to pull, I want to pull towards content. Make sure that oh, it's all about content. Got, look, we've got to have the right gospel content. Do you hear me saying that? You can't have another message. You get another message and repentance won't come. We want the right message. We're going to focus on the right message. We need to make sure we rehearse the facts of the atoning work of Christ on the cross and it's repentance toward him there. It is faith in him there and everything that he did. But what this is drawing our attention to this morning is that we've got to be a certain kind of man in that gospel message delivery, right? I need to be gentle. I need to be able to teach. I need to be able to be patient when wronged. I can't be quarrelsome. I can't be a fighter about stuff. I can't just be a, a jerk and be satisfied that I gave them the message. 
see, the focus in the ministry is also on the kind of men that we must be. A couple things to think about. If you're going to be that kind of man, you come back to discipline one. I shepherd my heart. I do. I have to. I shepherd my heart. I, I'm, I'm concerned to step into the lives of my family, of my roommates, of where I live. I'm, I'm concerned that my home becomes a place where there's just this gospel aroma that just comes off of me. The word of God just exudes forth from me. People are in my home and they, they, get, they get affected by it. And when I step into people's lives, I want the right message. I don't want the wrong message. And I'm concerned to be a certain kind of man as I step into people's lives. That's what we're aiming for as we gather every other Saturday. And, and once this year is done and you guys move on and you do other things, you never graduate from this. You never stop shepherding your life towards these things. We want the men of the church to, to rally around these kinds of things. That we have to be certain kind of men. Is there any other kind of missionary to send out than this one concerned about that? These things. Is there any other kind of man to develop into a small group leader than this kind of man? Is there any kind of deacon over a ministry to raise up and, by God's grace, see happen in a life? Is there any other kind of man? Is there any other kind of elder that should be eldering in this church or any church than this kind of man? This is where we have to be. This is the call for us today to come back to this. You know what's really sad? I came across this um, statistic a couple of, uh, it was probably about five years ago now, that in America, by the way, where's, the, um, and John might even be able to correct me on this, where is the largest um, mosque that does training in the world located? Do you know? New York City. Um, we have a great need in our nation where we're at. In fact, we, I think, are, are referred to as the fifth um, most unreached nation. I know, we're post-Christian. We're not unreached in the sense that the gospel has never come to us. We're unreached in the sense that um, the gospel came and went. We're, we're becoming like Europe. There's a huge, for those of us who are called by God to serve the gospel mission here, we need to be, this is very important for us, where we're at. One of the statistics I came across a couple years ago was that, um, relatively speaking, they found that it takes a church of 100 people, 12 months of doing gospel ministry, whatever way they're doing it, okay, and that's up in the air, like, who knows how they're doing it. And, and you'll see the results here and what it probably says about how they're doing it. It takes a church of 100 people over a course of 12 months to see 1.67 people respond to Christ in a year. Now, the promises of God in the gospel have never changed. Never changed. Right? The atoning work of Christ expiates today like it did 2,000 years ago. It propitiates today like it did 2,000 years ago. It regenerates today like it did 2,000 years ago. That's never changed. Now what has changed then? And, and we're told by Jesus that the Son of Man did not come um, to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for 
1.67 every 12 years or every 12 months. No, for, for many, for many, the intent of the atoning work of Christ is to see many respond. That's what it was applied towards. So the promises didn't change. And here's another promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That hasn't changed. The Spirit of God still does His empowering work. Um, hasn't changed at all. In fact, there's a reality that we find at the very end of the age that gathered around the throne in heaven, there's going to be men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. That atoning work and the power of, of, of disciples going out in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be very effective. So what on earth is going on that 100 people would see 1.67 conversions in a year? If the promises didn't change, what's changed? And I think we can point to the fact, two things. One, probably the gospel content isn't what it needs to be. And what kind of people are we? If the kind of people we are labors for repentance and we're the wrong kind of people, repentance has a huge obstacle to get over and around. And so this is a call to us to come back to the gospel, to come back to the content of the gospel, to reclaim the gospel. And praise God, we're in a day where I think that's happening unlike anything I ever saw 20 years ago. People are... are they're, Churches and, and leaders in, in, in this nation and, and beyond are, are talking about the gospel in ways that I've never seen. That is, a, that is an amazing thing that God's doing in our lifetime. There needs to be simultaneously with that a call that we need to be the right kind of people. What kind of men and women and boys and girls should we prove to be as we take that content out and about? Because look, repentance depends on it. As much as it depends on the content. So this is a call to us to come back to, look, I need to be sure that I'm the right kind of man. As we think about ministry, it's not just tell me what to say to people. Yeah, I'll gather, let's all gather as, as men in the church, just tell me what to say. Give me the right theology. Give me the right things to say. Give me the right doctrine to say. We're going to do that. But what must be, we, we be sure of first? Also, along with that, that we're the right kind of men. Because you can give the right message to the wrong men, and you've got big problems. And we don't want to just be godly men who aren't thoughtful theologically either. We're not satisfied with that. We want both. Got to be all of this. So, Tom, I see you turning your Bible. What's on your mind? Note to self. Okay. It may not need to be. All right. Any thoughts or questions or comments, guys, as we close up? We can hit small John. I've got a question, just kind of this idea of. Um, receptivity and repentance that I, I want to be a person who genuinely cares for my non-believing friends and co-workers and loves them and does good for them I want them to be blessed by me and I also want them to repent and I don't want to be uh, <coughs> if there are any Amway salesmen in the room I don't want to be an Amway salesman who makes friends with people just to come along and like smack them on the back of the back of the head with my agenda? Um, and I'm I'm just curious to, to to hear how you think through those things. Well, what do you guys think? 
Good thoughts? I don't want to manipulate people. That's what I'm about. Yeah. I've had three three L's for witnessing and will. First, we have to be lovers of their souls. We have to love them deeply for their soul, not just what their outward appearance is. Secondly, we have to live a life that they want to see. An example I use is I've uh, stood many times at a corporate uh, cocktail party at a urinal and the guy sitting next to me, I noticed you don't drink. And I said, no, I don't, because uh, my, um, I'm a Christian. Okay, he said, well, I wish I had that. I wish I could do that. Well, he's staggering up against the wall. Okay, that's a simple life, but that's a, an example which they see from me and question why they have it. At that point in time, you see it is the third L, and that's your lips. Once they see your life, then they ask you what you have. And you can witness the gospel. Mm -hmm. The three, three L's of witnessing. Yeah. What else do you guys think? Yeah. I think that if we are really about the gospel in our lives, then it won't be sort of an agenda to whack them on the heads. You know, like it can. I can certainly see where you know if, if we're trying to like set something up because we have this hidden agenda that that could be a problem but if I think if we really understand the gospel it won't be manipulative if we're living the gospel it'll be a genuine love for this person and that will just flow directly in anything we have opportunity to say or do with them that's good Scott yeah David I've got a Buddy in Minnesota that I've been sharing with for six years. Yeah, you know, there's some response, but I mean, obviously, he, he's not. <coughs> and uh, he's coming. This he's coming today. He's he's going to come to church with us tomorrow. And his biggest concern was, you know, what should I wear? I don't want these Christians to look down on me. And so I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to the right words to share, you know, it's, it's, it's concerned is like self-righteous Christians, you know. Well, praise God that um, you can come to our church wearing just about anything. Have something on your good shape. So. Yeah, Mike, what are you going to say? Can read. Yeah. Verse, or worship. Oh. It's First Peter 2, 9 through 12. Mm -hmm. It says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you go back to James, um, he talks about being merciful, mm -hmm. living out that life. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So to keep your, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Yeah. That's good. 
In fact, John, I, I think probably the best answer to your question is, I think you've been set up well by Paul in chapter one to ask that question. Look at chapter two. And this is what we'll look at next time. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't a waste. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. See, we're not, we don't have a hypocritical thing that we're doing here. We're not trying to hoodwink you. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even those apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. All right, you manly man. When was the last time you said, you know, I'm like a mom? I want to be like a mom to you. Dude, you want to find out how secure you are in your manhood? Say that. <laughs> Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you became very dear to us. You have become very dear to us. That's, I mean, that's, we, we need to pray, God, make them dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How many times has he said that? God is witness. You, you know. You know. You know. You know how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, believers. Just as you know how we are we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, there, there always needs to be a check to make sure that we're not flattering, that there's no pretext, um, that there's, there's not deceit in what we're doing, um, and there's nothing that cleanses us from those kinds of things than, making, than, than preaching the gospel to ourselves. Um, and the interesting thing is, is, is they were that way, and many responded in Thessalonica. And you can read Acts 17 about how they were chased <coughs> out of Thessalonica not long after these many had responded too. Um, and so there are some who will throw rocks at you while you do this and convince that you are a flatterer and that you are a deceiver and that you know what, you're out for greed in it. Paul, he just wants to make money off of you guys. And so there's Paul writing back saying, you know, it wasn't anything like that. Um, so that's a great question. We'll take a look at that more on next time we're together. Okay? Right, let's pray, and then we'll break up in a small group. We'll break down the room, and, and we'll uh, head into some small group time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for um, this passage. Thank you for... First Thessalonians, thank you for the message that you had for us here. Lord, we want to be men who um, explore the depths of the gospel. We want to be men who are mesmerized by its content. We want to be men who are reduced to tears and love and motivated 
powerfully to obedience because of what we see in Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead. And we want to um, know this as well as we possibly can. We want to never graduate from the study of, of the gospel. Lord, we want that first and foremost for our own lives just so that its powers would be true and real and uh, effective in our own lives. But we also want that because we want to be able to proclaim the truth accurately. We want to be able to proclaim the content of the gospel. But Lord, what we're being reminded here in gospel ministry is that the word cannot come, um, the gospel cannot come in word only. But we need to be certain kind of men that bring that amazing gospel, that content requires and demands of us to be a certain kind of man. God doesn't, God, you, you don't just want us, you don't want us to, to be just any old kind of man carrying your, your gospel forward. We need to be a certain kind of servant. Father, please um, make us into men who are worthy of the gospel, men who are worthy to carry the gospel into um, our households and beyond. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Be with us as we uh, go into small group and we attempt to spend a little time sharing our lives together and the work that we see you doing, Lord, where we are fainting and struggling and weak. May we be seeking the help of one another. Help us to labor for not just receptivity in our small groups, but also for repentance in one another. Um, and that we would be gentle among one another, like a mother, that we would exhort like a father would, help us to be everything we need to be as we bring the gospel to the middle of our relationships. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.